everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Now getting to where I get on with my webcam here in a second, so it'll it should be a second here, and I'll be on. Um, Mark, why don't why don't you open up at least, and uh, we'll talk to everybody for a second. Actually, it's uh, we already open. Oh, cool! All right, if we're already open, then hi everybody. I'm Wayne here. I'm out in northern Colorado with below zero temperatures and gonna get colder. They say, although the whole country is in sort of a a cold spell right now. And um, we are so excited to have Michael Cooley with us here today. He has been a, a veteran of our group for years now. And when Areeb and Mark were able to reach out and Sierra and, and get Michael to agree to do this, I was so excited. So I look forward to this. Apologize for starting a little late. Um, but uh, I'm going to have my webcam up and going in, in just a second here. But, Mark, are you recording yet? I started recording. All right. Um, so, anyway, we are so excited to have Michael Cooley. We've got Mark here. I think Sierra might be coming on from a staff side. Reed may be on also. Um, let me just set a couple of ground rules for you, and then I'm going to let um, Michael say hi and introduce himself. And then we're going to do this, I think, as an interview format today. I think of many of you that have been on over the last couple of weeks, we have been so blessed to have unbelievable um, interviews with people that I'm just hugely looking forward to this. And I know this is going to be unbelievable also. Um, but a couple things, please put some questions out there for us, please. Um, we never get enough questions. And uh, we, I know Michael will answer anything and everything we throw out. So please let your fingers do some typing. And, uh, and let's get some questions out there. And then secondly, um, if you'd like, we'll unmute you. You can raise your hand. You just put a little raised hand thing um, by your little question box, and we'll even unmute you and let you come on. And I've already said we're going to do an interview format with Michael today. And also, um, if you'll put some ones in the little cue box if you're hearing us all right. So, Michael, would you go ahead and Say hi to everybody and make sure they can hear you okay. Well, <sighs> greetings. It's uh, I'm honored to be here, Wayne. I'm honored to uh, be on the uh, on the same uh, stage with you, so to speak. I've been a a big fan of of eat, as you said, for many years. I had an undesirable break in being able to be on the webinars last year as I was finishing graduate work in agroforestry at the University of Missouri, um, just something I had to give, and that was one of the things that they gave. But um, glad to be back involved and was really honored to be asked to, to be on, very excited about being able to talk with you today. That's awesome. By the way, um, I spent an amazing three weeks in Sedalia, Missouri this fall um, for uh, completely different area, uh, pursuit, um, but I, I I've gained a real love of that area. It's not it's not totally close to where you were at, but it's similar similar ecosystem. So uh, um, let's start with that. Tell us tell us what. Let's go back and and tell us sort of a five minute history of Michael and his life as it relates to what he's doing today and, and sort of what has led us to today. And that'll give you a chance to talk about what happened at, uh, in your grad program. That you were well, I had backgrounds in executive management, primarily um, healthcare administration. Um, I was in finance for about 16 years, but for the last 25 years or so, I've had a personal interest in sustainable agriculture and food production. So 
when I got kind of burned out in the finance industry, I decided I wanted to do something with the rest of my graying years that would, one, have more of an impact uh, worldwide, and two, would have more, would be more in line with my pers personal interests. So I, um, I had, had pursued the permaculture design certification and received that with Jeff Lawton and had been teaching permaculture and doing permaculture consulting. But I came to the conclusion that permaculture, while it has a lot of social capital, it, it doesn't have a lot of academic capital and it doesn't have a lot of buy-in by governments internationally. So I had also developed an interest in agroforestry and agroforestry, on the contrary, has a lot of academic involvement and also has a lot of buy-in by, by governments. The USDA actually has a Department of Agroforestry. So I began to pursue the master's degree program at the University of Missouri, and it was a great program. And I loved, of, loved every course, with the exception of possibly the uh, GIS course, which is very hard to take programming remotely. Um, but it was all online and it, it was great. And through some other amazing uh, interactions with people and a course that I took at Echo Global Farm in Fort Myers, Florida, um, a course on a certification in tropical agriculture cultural development. I met a guy who invited me to be agriculture director for a project in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And that kicked open all kinds of doors for uh, working in um, agricultural development. So I teach. Um, I've been teaching agricultural courses and conferences over Zoom because everything's so shut down with flights uh, into Africa. They're, they're very cautious there and they have a lot of restrictions on travel. Uh, so I just recently taught a course, I think the slide is showing now, to 250 starving farmers in Malawi uh, who are having a disastrous three years of bad weather followed by an infestation of fall armyworm. It's, um, it's a corn borer like we have here. If you ever grow corn, you know there's a, a corn borer that we have. This thing is twice the size and twice as prolific. And uh, so we were teaching basically teaching two main themes. One, that we see in nature patterns that can be used for agriculture that are more successful than monocropping. And, and number two, that part of that is, is that in nature, the ground is never naked. There's always a ground cover. And so we teach these principles and it, it gives them a little bit more um, resilience in their agriculture by planting, by doing alley cropping or um, interplanting with uh, legumes that drive off the army worm and things like that. Mark and I were talking about that before, before you came on. But so that's that's kind of where I am now. I'm, I'm working for a couple of uh, NGOs doing consulting for them and in Kenya and um, actually just recently did a project for Renature Foundation in, uh, that was in Canada. So that's the only temporary thing I've done for a while, but doing work in Sierra Leone, West Africa, Malawi, KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. It's been very rewarding. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a real humbling thing to see people who are hoping that you're going to show them something that's going to enable them not to 
to have their family go hungry. By the way, everybody, you should just something huge to hear there. All of what he just described with these these places he's helping has happened during the pandemic when he can't go visit them. <laughs> and, yeah. and all he's able to do is teach um, teach through uh, you know uh, web webcasting circumstances. And, um, back to the group very there in Malawi. You know, I don't know if, if everybody saw there wasn't a single mask in that room, and I don't think those people were social distancing. Different subs, different topic, different subject, but uh, obviously they're facing very different circumstances um, there. Um, so this is one that that you know you you know I would at least somehow ask what are you teaching and or do you currently personally believe about soil management and land management generally that would differ from what Jeff might believe let's take it out of the permaculture side of things that Mark Shepard would certainly be a, a, a proponent of. Uh, Evan Fold, these are all people, as you know, that I know and that we've had as, as large proponents of what we do. Um, you know, I could come up with a whole bunch of other names. Elaine Ingham on the soil, the soil fertility mm -hmm. side of things. Anything that would be greatly different or is it sort of just a different approach and different people that you're working with? Now the only the only difference, and and you've named some of my uh, um, avid fans of all those people, and in fact my um, my original involvement with Eat, I believe, was with my connection with Mark Shepard. I'm I'm uh, I've met Mark in person, and avid avid uh, fan of his. I use his book when I teach permaculture, but um, the only difference. Wayne is that um, where I am working, where where I have been led to be most involved is in the tropics, and the principles are the same, and in fact some of the principles are even more um, important in the tropics than they are in a temperate climate. The idea of diversification, of not having a monocrop, it's even more critical in those in those areas. We know uh, people have um, have demonized palm oil because the companies that are only concerned about profits will come into an area. They'll pay some government official to turn over hundreds of thousands and thousands of acres where they proceed to strip it to the ground and remove the ecosystem and plant only palm oil palms. Well, they are trees, so it could be worse, but it's, it's a bad way of doing it. But I'm helping, in fact, some of those pictures you were showing are actually oil palm seedlings, smallholder oil palm growing is is certainly viable and certainly um, gives um, smallholders access to a cash crop uh, producing the oil from the kernels is not a particularly difficult thing it doesn't require industrial mechanisms they can do it in the smallholder share in, in a small setting in a barrel um, and then they can sell it and even though these people many of them in many many parts of the tropics have all these millions of acres of palm oil trees around them they pay retail for palm oil and and it seems like tragic but if they're fortunate enough to have their own oil palm on their property, they can harvest and they can produce their own oil and they can even sell it for, you know, above, for below what the retail is and still make make some profit. So that's one of the things that we're doing. But other than that, the principles 
that um, that you that you would read in in Mark Shepard's book. Those principles, it's the same principles. We're using the the same principles. I'm basically teaching agroforestry and and permaculture to these farmers. Um, you were talking about I'm not social distancing. Originally, I was told there were going to be 25 of them. Then I was told there were going to be 100 of them. And at the day of the conference, and we, we provided funding for them to be able to print all the slides that I used, they, they had 250. And they were the venue only allowed 100 into the venue, and 150 of them had to stand outside and listen to speakers. I think the venue felt bad, and so they said, well, another 50 can come in. So they allowed another another 50 of them to, to come into the venue, but yeah, I didn't see any mask over there at all when I was, when I was teaching. Um, but yeah, so the, the things that you're talking about, I, in my, in my lecture, in my, uh, workshop that I did for the farmers in Malawi in that conference, um, I, it was six hours long. I started teaching on East Coast time. It was 2 a.m. And, and taught for six hours beginning here at 2 a.m. It was about 8 a.m. for them there. Um, they had breaks and a lunch and it was very productive, very humbling. At the end, I thought I was done. I wrapped it up and people began to walk up and get in line at the, begin at the front of the conference center where they could see me. And they would take the microphone and they would speak in Chewa, which is their local language. And, and th then it would be in reverse interpreted for me. And yeah, the whole conference was interpreted into their language. I would, it's very difficult. Um, you, you speak a few sentences and you stop. And you speak a few sentences and you stop for six hours. It's, it's quite, it's quite, um, it's a quite an arduous way of teaching, but it was effective and people came up and, and got in line to take the microphone and, and uh, express their gratitude for new ideas. They had never thought of the idea that the ground should be covered, yet they have these, when the rainy season is, they have this deluge of these typhoons that come in and wash their soil away. And I told them, my brothers, this is your soil. It is washing, this is your property washing out into the ocean because the ground is naked. And, and they understood it. They got it right off. It was like, how come we didn't think of this before? So, um, so yeah, the ideas are not really any different. It's just that because it's the tropics, I'm in the tropics so much, it's a little different that way. The soil, you would think in a jungle situation. Um, currently, I've, I'm restoring, I'm restoring uh, cocoa farms in the Gola rainforest region of Sierra Leone. And, and during the 90s, they had a horrible civil war there. Um, if you ever saw the movie Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio, it's about that civil war. And it was an important industry. Cocoa was an important industry for Sierra Leone. But when this civil war was, the rebels would come in and basically attempt to force people to join the rebel army. Of course, they were fighting over diamonds. And the so the men of working age would leave the country until the war would be over. What was a 13-year-long war, and many of them just never returned. Well, it shut that industry down. It shut the cocoa industry down. And when, when, the, when the war was over, people were too busy trying to feed themselves instead of, of growing cocoa. So you have these 20-year-old cocoa plantations 
that have been abandoned for that entire time, but they're completely viable and the trees are still there and many of them are still producing very heavy crops of cocoa. And so I'm involved in, I'm actually ha uh, uh, trying to obtain rotary money, Rotary International funding to help bring these farms back online in this particular chiefdom that I'm working at in Sierra Leone. But it's not to answer your question. It's not really any different than the than the things that that other speakers on on the program have have given. It's just it's in a tropical setting, so there are particulars for that. the The soil there, you would think in a jungle, well, that soil must be rich, but it's not. It all oxidizes. There's no depth. It just oxidizes. Yeah, that that's the fallacy that a lot of people don't understand about tropical um, rainy season type of areas where there's dry and rainy. The, the, the undergrowth, if you just let something be natural, is minimal because there's no nutrients in the soil. It gets taken up so rapidly by those by those trees, um, and so it's a very different kind of a scenario. Um, Michael, let's, let's change subject just a little bit, but it's on the same topic. What's it going to take to get, of those 250 Malawian farmers, even 20% of them to be making a living from their farms rather than starving, as you've described? What, what, what is the, if you had to just say one thing, you, didn't, you couldn't give two answers, you couldn't give five answers. What's the biggest constraint stopping them from, from having success? Well, the biggest constraint is that they are, that they are accustomed to monocropping. And, and if they can make the transition to, uh, to agroforestry or to um, intercropping or what have you, it will make a huge difference. The big thing is they have no ground cover um, and and so their crops are very you know, in the tropics they have the problem with the dry seasons they all you know it's a dry season in the tropics everywhere and in some places the dry season it's bone dry. I mean there's no moisture. Well you know 100 degree heat, and, and no moisture is kind of hard on corn, which is what they're all trying to grow over there. Um, and if there's some ground cover, if they can grow things in a, by following natural patterns, which is what, if you would talk to Mark or Evan or any of them, they're gonna say the same thing. If, if they would do that, if they would follow natural patterns for agriculture, and hopefully they are going to, we're, in process of giving them access to desmodium seed. Also, they're gonna be doing some alley cropping. Some of them want to try alley cropping with neem. Um, if you're familiar with neem oil from organic pesticides, neem trees grow in that area naturally, and they can, they can plant neem and grow the corn three or four rows in between it, and as the neem grows, they can coppice it down, you know, to a stump almost, and it'll just keep coming back. And so there, those are some of the things we taught in the, in the conference. And, but, but to put it in a, in a sentence, it would be for them to follow natural patterns instead of Western design for agriculture. And for you to be able to teach this course, maybe even let's say you get a chance to teach another one six months from now or another one a year, aren't, as they leave your course, aren't they hearing from the government, from other farmers around them that aren't doing what you would teach, just the opposite. Plant that corn, monocrop it. That's what the government says is the right thing to do. That's what, that's what you know, the wealthy farmers do. Isn't that a fight also that, that you're going to have to somehow develop enough of a 
a level of confidence. And let, let me give you a, a, a sideline story related to that. Throughout the early part of my career, I was, at the time, I thought fortunate enough through mission activities I was involved in to build some greenhouses in about seven different locations around the world. Swaziland, Ukraine, um, Poland, um, El Salvador, uh, I've got four or five, and a, and a couple of others. And we committed, the group that helped build these, so they were completely funded by a sponsoring organization, turned out a, a, a church in the United States. And then we went over and with a group of people, 20 some people, I was the technical leader. We built these greenhouses. We then committed to have someone stay there for, for at least a year that had experience in growing things in greenhouses. And, and they would help them um, change their attitudes and, and transition from what they were doing and grow indoors, as well as outdoors, by the way. But we failed. All of those. Every one of those facilities today are gone or in disarray. And what we realized, and this is an attitude change that I've had now, is that you can't change somebody in a year. You can't commit and literally being there full time. You can't do it in five years. You probably have to at least think about a generation, 25 years, which means and you've shown kids in these pictures, it's ultimately the five-year-old that see it when it gets started, who when they're 25 are now in it that are really gonna cause it to succeed. So I'm curious about your thoughts along that level because I'm really afraid that what you're doing now, if you can't get yourself and financially, because I actually thought that answer would be real simple, it'd just be money, if we need funds. If there were funds, you know, I could commit and we'd find guys that didn't have to travel even during the pandemic and we would get them in there and figure out how they were. We would commit to them for five years, 10 years, 25, whatever, if it was funded properly. Because again, in the interim, they might start making money early on, but they might not. And you certainly still would need funding for people to be there and helping and being alongside them. And that's my biggest worry, and only because I've seen it happen so much in projects that I've had involved in. So I'm curious about broadly your thoughts about that. Well, it is it is one of the enormous development hurdles, and it's it's probably the the most common that that it fails. I've read of projects in Haiti where you know uh, they they plant trees, and the idea is. For these trees to grow up and they'll be coppicing trees that the people will be able to use to heat and cook with the they'll be able to chop and uh, use for for cooked fuel but before the trees get up to a decent size where they can handle the coppicing they get cut down and we think well you know what's the problem we told them they had to wait I had a had a lady who's a, a missionary in um, Burkina Faso say that part of the problem is you've got the woman of the house who is doing typically doing the cooking. She's carrying baby on each arm. She's got two babies hanging onto her her dress as she's trying to walk. She's not going to walk to the place where they currently get wood. You know. Uh, like a quarter of a mile away when these these trees that were just planted by the by the Americans are right here they're going to take them they're not going to wait so sometimes that's the situation in Malawi the the most tragic statistic that I came across is that 85% of the people are subsistence farmers Eighty-five percent of them are subsistence farmers, meaning that they farm so their family doesn't starve. It's not—it's not a farmer like here, where you're, you know you think of a farmer and he's 
He's trying to make an income off of his farm. They are farming to prevent starvation, 80, 85%. Um, and so if they have three years in a row where they barely have enough corn for seed for the next year because of this army worm, and you come in and you say, I have something I want you to try. It may improve what you're doing. They're grateful for the information and they will try. The government has no answers. They have a uh, they have an extension program like we do here in the United States with many of the agricultural schools having extension offices. They have a program like that, but things are so poorly funded in these countries. Um, Sierra Leone, where the where the cacao is and um, where the uh, oil palm was pictures were. It's the sixth from the bottom on the human development index. It's sixth from the bottom in the world as far as development. There's no electricity. People don't have running water. They don't have electricity. It's um, deeply, deeply impoverished. And so anything you can do to bring in, you know, improvements is generally they're willing to to listen. Now, there is always pushback because you're coming in and you're the tall guy from the West and generally you're of a different skin tone. And so they they think, well, how? why are you telling me about agriculture? I live here. You don't live here. And, and so... There is, as you probably found out, there is a finesse with how you how you present. Um, one of the things I wanted them to try because it's the number one Sierra Leone's the number one country in the world for death of live-born children before age five, and it's because many many of the infants are stunted because the mother's milk dries up when the child is a couple of weeks old and there's nothing to feed it. There's no stores. They don't know what formula is. It's not anything they have. So you've got a child who is screaming, not able to eat for days until the, until the production milk production comes back. But Moringa, if you're familiar with Moringa, it's a tropical tree that is unbelievable nutrient value. I mean, when you read it, you think that can't be possible. The NIH has done major studies on on Moringa, and it grows there just crazy prolifically if you, if you plant it. Well, you try to tell them that, and it's kind of like if I told you, hey, there's some silver maple trees out here, Wayne. If you go and eat some of those leaves, with me, our hair color is going to go back to what it was when we were 15. What do you say? Well, you might you might try it, but you look at me kind of strange. You say, well, how come I never heard this before? And that's how they reacted about the moringa. But I was able to find a, a young man who was working with a British non-governmental organization who was doing trials there on the the. Um, Galactagog properties of Moringa bringing back milk production and nursing mothers. And he was able to speak to my guy. And of course, he's a local guy. So he was like, okay, we'll try it. So it, it is tough. And, and sometimes you feel like your money is being thrown away. Um, there's equipment all over the place that was brought in by mission organizations and NGOs that they just they didn't use it and it just sat there and rusted so you have to you have to follow up one of the benefits of having everything locked down like it's been there has been more of an emphasis on using um, text messaging uh, there's been a, a normalization of that if you will and and because of that I've been able to stay on top of things and and ask, so what about what about the brushing of the model farm for the cocoa farmers association that we're developing? Has has the brushing been completed? What do we need? 
well, we need more machetes. We need a few more hours paid for for these people to do that. So I'm able to stay in touch as opposed to going back six months later with no information and finding that nothing's been done like you were talking about. What are these? What's this tuberous plant that we're seeing in the in the view here now? Um, Mark, don't Mark right that's, there. That's cassava. It's cassava. It's okay. um, it is almost as staple to them in Sierra Leone as rice. Rice and cassava is what they have. Wayne, eighty percent of every meal is carbohydrate from rice or cassava. It's like um it's like an enormous well you can see what it looks like. It's more it behaves more like a potato and they mash it up with a rod in a bowl, a big stick and they mash it in a bowl and turn it into a it's kind of like a a paste. Um like if if um your mashed potatoes didn't turn out right or something. It it's it's a starch, and they pour a little half a cup of soup over it, and that's their meal every day. That's what they eat, and that's why their life expectancy there is like fifty fifty two. Wow. By the way, it looks like a uh, a Jerusalem or artichoke tuber growth on steroids. Um, yeah, so yeah. If you reduce that by 10x, that's what the tuber system of a Jerusalem artichoke, which that's something most of our viewers don't even know what I'm talking about when I say Jerusalem artichoke, which, by the way, is a native plant to the United States. It is, it is uh, found in along roadway sides as a weed. Um, the Native Americans cult cultured it, grew it back when the settlers first came here. And it's an amazingly nutritious plant. And um, I had the, the good fortune or the bad fortune, because you could look at it both ways, of working with a company back in the early 80s and into the mid-80s that tried to make Jerusalem artichoke another staple crop for the United States and, and didn't succeed. And it's sad that they didn't because it really could have been. There are millions of acres of it on the steppe regions in Russia, by the way. So the Russians mm. have made, have done really, really well with it. But just cassava looks, I thought that was probably cassava, but I didn't know for sure. Um, and it looks like on steroids. By the way, Kajusa yeah, Marcho has very high protein too. So it, it's not, by the way, it's, a, it's in the sunflower family, everybody. And when you see it growing along a roadway, it just you probably think you're looking at a sunflower, and um, and it's it, it's not. But anyway, some um, some people so here call a little it more, sunshine. a couple more little personal questions. What's that? Sunshine. Some people here yeah, is, yeah, is call it sunshine. Yeah, and uh, it's a another property yeah. of it is it's an oligosaccharide. It it doesn't um it doesn't affect. It has actually yeah. a sweetness to it. But it doesn't affect insulin level. Fructose, it's fructose-based sugar rather than glucose. Right. Yeah, it's a, right. it's an amazing plant, and its uppers have as high as 38% protein for livestock feed. I mean, it, it's a pretty amazing plant. Something that very, another webinar, very another time, and a, another speaker. Yeah, very exactly. vigorous as well. It's very vigorous as well. Oh, it'll it grow anywhere. It, it'll yeah. grow in the deserts of, of Nevada. And it'll grow in the rainforests of the, of the Olympic Peninsula. Um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing crop. Um, so let, let, let's go for a little bit here, take 10 minutes or so, and go into some a little more lightning rod kinds of questions in a little more personal sense. Um, tell us about a tool that you've started to use in the last year that you really love. You don't have to think about it very much. It could be a hand tool. It could be a farming tool. To be an internet tool, you name it, that you would highly recommend to others. Uh, let's see. Well, um, I've got a real nice set of clippers that I'm really enjoying. It's Felco. 
<laughs> that I use for pruning, but that's not a very good example. Um, no, of course, people know about that's a good one. That that people, yeah, people know about A-frame levels, and I've had to teach people how to use A-frame levels. That's that can help you with contour okay. lines and things like that. That's that. Oh, no, those are those are great um, examples. I was never really a fan of Zoom, and to be honest with you, I'm not that big a fan of it now, but it is a tool that I have learned to use, and it it's an effective way if you can't if you can't be somewhere live, it's an effective way of um, of dealing with things. so that's a, that's another one that I would I would point out. Um, the um, I guess that would be the the main ones that I would I would come up with in the last year. So let, let me before I go to some others that are that are my questions. We do have three questions from the audience. The first one, and then it leads okay. in. So, what ground covers are good in a very? She says very dry weather. I think she probably means really arid locations. Do you have some thoughts there? answer to that question um a lot of times we put in things like um beans or legumes like lab lab now i'm talking about the tropics now which you know if you're you've got wet tropics and you've got dry tropics but pigeon pea um it, which is a almost shrub level bean um pigeon pea um lab lab cowpea we've used cowpea successfully cowpea is what we recognize here in the states as black-eyed peas so if you're if you're a fan of black-eyed peas if you're from the south it's almost required but um the southeast anyway but uh those are some that we would have typically legumes that that work well um, you can also use trees to function as ground covers um, lucana um, fiderbia some of these trees that grow in the tropics that are nitrogen fixers you you coppice them and you put the leaves on the ground probably the best one right now that i would think of is enga i-n-g-a um, amazingly fast growth. It can be coppice to a stick from a full-size tree, and the, and the leaves are highly uh, valuable for soil composition and for soil uh, nutrients. And it can cover. You can cover the ground with it so thick, you can still plant corn in it, but yet it will come up through the corn. The the leaves that you've coppiced down from the inga will form a mulch that will hold the moisture in, will protect the ground from erosion, and will keep the the weed pressure, even in the tropics, keep the weed pressure off. So sometimes ground cover isn't necessarily from something that's growing on the ground. Sometimes ground cover can be in the form of of trees that the leaves form a ground cover. So I don't know if there's more to that question, but that's what comes to mind. That was awesome. Really good answer. No, that was awesome. Um, so back to, anyway, audience, by the way, throw in some other questions for Michael. We've got about 15 minutes left here, and make sure you, you get them in. Um, Michael, what about um, a person other than your parents that had awesome influence on you up through your, let's say, the end of your high school times? So young adulthood, childhood, one person, just give us a little bit about who they are and why they had such an influence. Well, they're not with us any longer. You said other than my parents are not with us any longer. There's a... Uh, a man who I grew up with, he was kind of a youth leader in my church and 
as I grew out of that and was a college student, he continued to be a mentor. He was an engineer and a plant manager of a corporation that made fruit harvesting and bagging equipment. A brilliant man, very brilliant, very smart man, but very keen on his uh, his abilities in the area of logic, and and it was it was such a um, a benefit being around him and learning how to think. It's one thing to be told what to think, but and and given the information that we can fill our thoughts with. But this man was was very good at teaching you how to think, and and so that was that was a great benefit. It's a good question. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that for years, but that's who I would say. Now let's bring us up to the current time. Um, same same question, but now is there? We've already talked about several people who have been influencers, but is there one that really stands out? And that that influenced you as it relates to your your agroforestry or your land management, or maybe take a different direction, your helping people uh, perspective, because that's clearly uh, the underlying of what you're doing. Um, the first person that comes to mind would be Jeff Lawton. Uh, with the Permaculture Research Institute, when when I took the PDC, it it just it blew my mind. It just it seems so obviously correct and and so obviously different than what we see in in current agriculture. And then when I read Mark Shepard's book. It was just more of the same. So I, I would say primarily Jeff and, and also Mark. Um, I, I have every, every, I have downloaded every EAT presentation that Mark did. And I copied slides as, as you were going through his slides, I was doing screen print on my Mac and, and, pulling them over and, and I would put them in a folder. Um, but that's fair because we were at, Mark and I were at a um, expo one time. And while I was presenting, he I saw him taking pictures of the screen of my slide. So, so it was, it was fair, but Mark's a great guy. And, and Jeff, oh, that, Jeff that. Lawton, I guess, I guess I would also have to say Bill Mollison kind of, posthumously, but um, that, that would be my answer. Okay. Um, here's a tough one. This is a, a hard one that I always ask. You've heard me do this before, which is yep. tell us about an event that happened in your life sometime. You can be as, as, as general about this or as specific as you want to be that was really negative at the time. And yet now, as you look back on it, it had a really positive impact rather than the horribly negative that you saw right when it happened. So in 2011, in October 2011, I had a birth defect-related massive stroke. And the doctors basically wrote me off, told my wife she needed to be prepared for the worst and um, you know a lot of people divine intervention whatever you want to say completely recovered from it no residual um, but it gave me wow. you know it gave me pause to think what am I going to do with my life you know I, I may at, for the longest time I really thought that it was something that you know, I may I may have a shortened lifespan. I wasn't sure. I've since been told that I probably have longer than most people, and that that's not an issue because they did scans to make sure there wasn't other situations like that. So I've had had a lot of checkup in that area. But that event 
was a very negative event. Obviously, they, you know, told my family I was going to die, or if I wasn't, they were going to push me around in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And none of that, none of that materialized. But it, it gave me, it gave me the recognition that that um, all of us, for all of us, life is fatal. And um, you know, what are we, what are we going to do with it? So that had some influence on my my uh, desire to quit being a a successful financial advisor and and pursue agricultural development in in the least developed world. And then last question, and then I'm going to let you sort of finish off with whatever thoughts you have, and please let me put questions in if you have them. Um, look ahead five years. Maybe even longer, five, seven years, maybe not ten, five to seven years. And if funding was not an issue, you literally could get the reasonable amount of money that you needed to both travel, once travel's opened up, um, to help fund your your teaching um, in Malawi, in Sierra Leone, possibly even. To, to fund some of what uh, these farmers need to need to be doing to, to make things right, what do you see yourself doing five to seven years from now? Funding's not an, funding's not an issue. Um, pretty much just more of the same, Wayne. I um, I've been asked to come to Zimbabwe in September and be involved in a um, organization called foundations for farming it's um it's the same type of idea you know ground cover and things like that i um i'm going to teach in malawi in july live instead of over zoom also going to do a workshop there on beekeeping they've asked that i'm a beekeeper and and i was in the um in in the actual um conference that I did, I talked about beekeeping as far as the, uh, the bees being pollinators and that that might be something that... I'm going to interrupt for just a second. My audio source is going dead. Michael, I'm just interrupt quick. I'm going to still be listening. I've got to go grab another one, but I'm going to be off the webcam. So keep going. Keep going about what you want to be doing. Okay. Okay. So... Uh, I am going to be teaching beekeeping to the farmers in Malawi as a part of um, agricultural processes. Um, it's possible that in the fall I may be going to uh, to attempt to establish a a bee uh, an economic beekeeping business model for some farmers in Myanmar and Southeast Asia. Um, so if I, if the funding wasn't a problem and travel was open, I would be just doing more of the same. I would be doing it, um, instead of three or four trips a year, I'd be doing eight or 10 trips a year. I want to be home and see my wife occasionally, but, um, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm all about being out there doing what, what I've been led to do. So. Um, if, if money wasn't an object, I'd just keep doing what, what I'm doing now, just more of it. And then last, let's just let you finish off. Got four or five minutes left here. Just any thoughts you have. I think Mark and Reeve are showing a page right now, which gives some discussion about your consulting. And this, I think, is probably worldwide, but probably more U.S.-centric, and it's a way that you make money. And, and guys, we need to support people like Michael and help him make some money. These numbers, because I've seen them from a bunch of different people that probably do very similar things that Michael would do, are off the charts reasonable. Um, so they're really, it's really good. But make sure you end by uh, Mark or Reed, put up a page that will show contact information for Michael and so they can make sure to know how to get a hold of them. And um, Michael, I'm going to talk to you about off air when we're done here and probably not today, maybe next week sometime about a little bit more of that bigger picture too. Um, and, uh, 
and I, I have some thoughts, and, and I didn't raise that funding issue completely out of nowhere. Um, I've, I've got some things, some God, God prompted things happening in my life right now that are mm-hmm. making some money available for, for some things. And so, um, I, I, and I, I want to be supporting and, and you're doing some things, these things you're doing. By the way, I have a connection long term to Sierra Leone. Uh, my church had a, a church in Sierra Leone in 2011 <laughs> and oh. before that. Um, and you can imagine what, what happened there. We, we lost two people in a, that were killed. Um, and, and fortunately not a lot more, but, and then Burkina Faso, uh, which is another really ridiculously poor country, um, has had activity there. Never been involved in Malawi at all, but certainly Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone. And, um, so anyway, you, you take the rest of the time here just to tell us what you'd like. And then if anybody has a question, get it in, and then also tell us how we get a hold of you. The, the primary uh, organizations that I'm working for, primarily I work for an organization by the name of Equipping Leaders International. And you can go to their website, and I'm under the category faculty, but it's Equipping Leaders International. I believe Mark's been showing uh, – Flashing up my Instagram page. My Instagram is Narrow Passage Permaculture. And there is a card on that that shows my um, the mission address, I believe. The um, And so, uh, so primarily I work for Equipping Leaders International. It is a faith-based organization and they do they help pastors to get training and my original work was to help develop a crash crop for these ministries on the ground in in these countries and it has developed into um, also developing improved livelihoods for the people in the communities and improved nutrition for the people in in the communities so um, but equipping leaders international would be one way people could could get them connected. I'm on LinkedIn, um, and there's some. He's got that showing. There's connections there as as well. I also work for the Renature Foundation. So if you go to Renature, if you Google Renature, I think it's Renature.co. There, boy, he he is he is good. Look at that. If, if you go to that and you go to the section that shows what's going on in Africa, um, my my ID is there and there's a little bio and a humongous picture. I don't know why they did it that way, but um, Renature, I have done work in Kenya for them. Um, and typically they will send me design work and then I... I uh, consult and review the work that somebody has done on the ground. Originally, I was supposed to go to Kenya, and when the travel breaks got put on the travel, they uh, they decided to send me the information and allow me to then do the design work. Um, just recently, starting with an organization by the name of Reforest Action. It's a French company. And they are having me look for reforestation projects in the United States. So I'm I'm also doing work. Those are my kind of my side hustles that um that I've got going on in addition to the work that I'm doing with Equipping Leaders International. But people are welcome to to go on the ELI website. Um, there's ways that you can uh, you can get in there and, and um, provide support that way. And if anybody emails me, I can put them on my newsletter. And Wayne, I think you would really enjoy that. So if I can make sure I have your email address. Yeah, my email is my email is permaculture at gmail.com. So yeah, he's got it. He's got it there on the, on the thing. So that's, that's, if I, People want to be on my mailing list. I tell stories of 
things that are going on and it's very popular email list. It's, I've got hundreds of people who have who have joined it and um, be happy to add anybody to that that would like to be on it. It's awesome. Well, we're a little bit over and I appreciate it. Our audience has stayed really stable through this. Thank you guys for being here. Hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. I always do. So great to have somebody who's been with our eat community for for as long as it's existed almost, which we're coming up on five years in in uh, in June. Wow! And um, he's doing great things. We want to help him do those great things. Um, please reach out to him. Get on his his mailing list. By the way, mine's real simple, Michael, and Dan, you'll have it even by just what you did for getting on the webinar. Wayne Dorband at gmail.com. Um, just name and and Gmail. And um, and I'd love to be on the on the mailing list. And I want to help. We want to help. Mark and Areed, thank you for your help. Sierra, thank you. Um, and this has been awesome. And uh, Michael, uh, thanks so much. Let's stay. Like I said, I'm going to reach out to you next. I'm going to reach out to you next week just to talk about some other just some other broad topics. Fantastic. Awesome. Love to so have Mark, you join you me in uh, in West Africa. Uh, uh, that would be real fun. That'd be great. I'd appreciate that. Mark, why don't you take us out? Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community Podcast.